I'm so glad this morning that uh, Jesus is here to satisfy you. If you're not aware, that is not my job. My job is to edify you. Jesus' job is to satisfy you. It's important that you understand that. We're going to get into some of that this morning. Um, that, uh, that really, at the end of the day, he's your great shepherd. He's your pastor. He's the one that takes care of you. Uh, I just work for him. But uh, we're going to be starting John 17. And uh, in John 17, uh, uh, I'm only going to get through the first five verses. And the reason is there's some foundational, uh, familiar stuff there. But sometimes the familiar stuff is the stuff we need to focus on for that very reason, because it's familiar and it, it ceases to impact us the way it should. And so uh, don't let the familiarity uh, cause you to tune out this morning. We want to look at some things. We want to look at the cross. We're going to look at some things that Jesus is talking about. And, in, and we've been talking about how John 14 through 17 are significant because it's Jesus' last words before he goes to the cross. But John 17 is Jesus' last words to the Father. It's a prayer. and It's a lengthy prayer. And Jesus hardly ever did anything lengthy. Um, but he does a whole chapter here. It's one of the longest prayers in the Bible, and it's a good prayer. What I like about it is I'm pretty sure it'll get answered because uh, it was Jesus. I'm pretty sure he knows how to pray, and I'm pretty sure the Father's going to do what he asked. So we should really pay attention to this prayer. And as happens sometimes when Jesus is talking to the Father, it's pretty clear, at least in the beginning of the prayer, that he's kind of praying but also letting, you know, He's telling the Father the things the, the Father already knows. Uh, it's kind of for us, too, or kind of for the apostles, too. And so it begins like that. And so I, I want to look at that. So we're, we're just going to get through the first five verses today, uh, I hope. We'll see. Um, so let's read those. John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words, all the words he's been speaking for the last three chapters. Then he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Pretty basic stuff. Clearly, he's talking about the cross uh, when he refers to the glory where he's headed. Uh, but uh, again, uh, we want to look a little bit more deeply at this. So I want to talk this morning most of all about the glory of the cross. Now, if that phrase sounds strange to you, uh, it's not my idea. Jesus uh, started, remember, back at the end of chapter 13 when he started this whole discourse that we've been looking at at the end of 13 through 14, 15, and 16. He started with this exact same language. The time has come for me to glorify you, Father. And he's, again, clearly, he's talking about the cross. When he says, the hour, that's what he means. The hour has come. What hour do you mean? You know, the hour that we've been waiting for for something like 4,000 years from when Adam fell in the garden and when you pronounced a curse, but you promised in the midst of that curse 
that her seed, capital S, would crush Satan's head, or would bruise Satan's head, right? This is that. This is the cross. This is getting ready to happen. This is the hour. This is uh, from the beginning of creation until now, this is the most significant hour in the earth. Looking forward 2,000 years, looking backward 4,000 years. Possibly his coming again will be as significant, but up until now, this is it. This is the hour, okay? And so he's going, the hour has come. The thing we've been talking about through prophecy and waiting for for 4,000 years is here, and his attitude is that it's glorious, that there's a glory in the cross. He, from our perspective, is getting ready to suffer humiliation and death, but from his perspective, it's glory. It's glory for him. It's glory for the Father. And the more we can understand that, the more we can walk in the glory that God has called us to walk in as we participate uh, in Jesus' resurrection and in his death. So it's the glory of the cross. It's the hour. And uh, in verse 1, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I just want to kind of look at this uh, and, and the glory of the cross and, and see if we can give you a, a perspective of how heaven looks at this. And we get a glimpse of that in the book of Revelation. So what happens, uh, book of Revelation chapter 1, we get a, a, a vision of Jesus in his glory and eyes like fire and uh, feet like bronze and he's real shiny and intimidating and awesome, Right? And then verse 2 and 3, we have Jesus walking among the lampstands, which are the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, in, in chapter 2 and 3, he dictates letters to each of those churches, telling them how they're doing. And then in verse 4, the angel says to the apostle John, come up here, I'm going to show you stuff that's going to happen. And all of chapter 4 is simply a vision of the glory of the Father, the glorious one on his throne there's jasper and light and, you know, uh, see-through golden floors, and it's awesome, right? That's all of chapter 4. And then we go to chapter 5, and this is what I want to focus on. I, I mentioned it before, but I actually want to go and read it here in a minute. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, because uh, here's what happens. Uh, John is taken to heaven, and he's shown things in the future, we know that the entire book of Revelation uh, is mostly seeing things in the future, right? So John is shown the throne room. Here's a glimpse of the throne room, John. Here's the Father. And I could have shown you the throne room anytime in the past or in the future, anywhere in history. And what I'm choosing to show you is the most awesome moment I can. It's the moment that the scroll is being handed to the only worthy one. That's the moment that I'm going to show up in the throne room with you, John. That's the moment we're going to show you because it's significant. Heaven is really invested in this moment. Now, what we know, if you've read the rest of the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, someone is going to start to open the seals on that scroll and judgments are going to be released into the earth, the righteous judgments of God. Uh, the intent will be, we read this in Revelation 11, that God will destroy those who destroy the earth. 
He will make things right. He will execute justice. And uh, that's going to begin with the breaking of the seals on this very same scroll. Seal, horseman, seal, horseman, seal, horseman. Keeps going. Seven seals, right? You guys are all familiar with that. So I want to focus on this because it's incredible that this whole thing is tied to the glory of the cross. So let's look at it in uh, Revelation chapter 5. Uh, and he says, And I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, we don't know what this scroll is. We can speculate. Maybe it's a deed of earth. Maybe there's stuff written on it about uh, God's plans. I don't know, but it's obviously very special. This scroll's been sealed for thousands of years, and John gets to see the moment where this scroll is handed over. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look at it. Wow, bummer. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So John gets, this is significant. This scroll is a big deal, and no one can even look at it. No one's worthy. Well, we know more, don't we? But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Let's just hold on to this question. He's, he's prevailed to open the scroll. He's done something that causes him to be worthy to open the scroll. How did he prevail? Let's think about that. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. How did he prevail? By becoming the cross, by becoming the sacrifice for all men, by becoming the lamb that takes away the sins of the earth. That made him worthy to open this scroll. So, let's read on. Uh, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And then heaven freaks out a little bit. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a, gold, and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints come into this, guys. Our prayers are moving towards this moment when the scroll is taken, when the earth is judged in righteousness. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't happen without us. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue, and people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature 
which is in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, and as such are in the sea, and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. What I want you to see is what made him worthy to open the scroll is the cross. The moment in time that John is taken to in the throne room, any other time, is the, is the giving of the scroll by the worthy one, the lamb who was slain. It's all the cross. It's the cross. It's the cross. It's the cross. The glory of the cross. It's the glorious celebration in heaven of the cross and what the cross purchased. And I want you to get this. Notice he is worthy to open the scroll that will judge the earth, that will literally wipe out nations. He will execute kings in his wrath. That's Psalm 110. Notice this. The only one worthy to bring the judgment, to literally bring life and death to earth, is the one who beforehand purchased men with his own blood. Redemption before justice. Isn't that awesome? The one worthy to judge us is the one who spent his life to redeem us. The cross is amazing. It is glorious. And that is why Paul could hardly talk about anything else. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we know Paul talked about a lot of other stuff. He talked about the end times. He talked about marriage. He talked about, you know, whether or not to eat food sacrificed to idols. He wasn't saying, I'm not going to talk about anything else. He's saying, everything I talk about is tied to the cross. That nothing is significant beyond the cross. It all connects to the cross. I'm not going to be, uh, the cross is always going to be my subject when I speak. That's what Paul's saying. And in this context, uh, it was about wise and excellent speech. I didn't come to you with wise words. I came to you with the cross. And so I want you to know that nothing speaks better than the cross. Whatever you have to tell people about Jesus or about how to be a good person or about how to do this or that or whatever, the cross is the most eloquent argument ever to be made. And so Paul is saying, uh, I, whatever I'm talking about is going to be about the cross, right? And so again, it's so familiar to us that it can be too familiar. We can forget how awesome and glorious the cross is, how important it is that we tell people about the cross. In Galatians 6.14, Paul said, but God forbid that I should boast or glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom this world was crucified to me and I to this world. Paul said, essentially, I only boast in the cross and it's more important to me than anything in the world. Now, again, in context, they were talking about circumcision, which was a religious duty or accomplishment. And so if you were circumcised, uh, you were set apart for God, right? If you were Jewish. And of course, we know we're not going to get into the whole Gentile thing and didn't have to be and all that. The point is, Paul's saying, my only boast is the cross. Well, Paul, didn't you go to 
Jerusalem U and, and, and major in Sanhedrinism. And like, weren't you at the top of your class? Well, yes, I was. Well, Paul, aren't you an apostle? Didn't you have a vision of Jesus personally? Well, yes, I did. Didn't you go to heaven and see things that you aren't even allowed to talk about? Well, as a matter of fact, I did. Now, I've heard that uh, when you're working on your tents and you wipe your head with a cloth and somebody takes that and puts it on a sick person, they get healed. He goes, yeah, that happens. And, and you can prophesy and tell us about things in end times that no one's heard about before. Yeah, yeah, I did that. Wrote some books. In fact, didn't you write like better than half the New Testament? Yeah, about that. Do you want to brag about anything about that? No, just the cross. That's all I got. All I've got is the cross, guys. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Doesn't matter. I mean, we want to do the stuff. But it doesn't matter if you can prophesy or heal the sick or preach real well or you're eloquent. The cross is our only boast. Jesus loved us so much that he died so that we could pass from judgment into life so that when he does come to judge the earth, we are exempt. That's awesome. And so we need to, you know, just read Revelation 5 sometimes. Just look at how awesome the cross is. Amen? Okay, let's move on. Verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, Jesus has been given authority from the Father over everyone, all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, let me point this out. This may seem like a fine point. We know in the garden there was a fall. And in the fall, Satan became the God of this earth. He got authority. But uh, let's be clear, God never lost his authority. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the people and all who dwell therein. It's always belonged to God and it always will belong to God and God will deal with the earth and its people in whatever way he pleases. God didn't lose authority. Who did? Man. It's important that we understand that extinction, distinction. God didn't lose authority. Man lost authority at the fall. Because one of the things Jesus is doing with the authority that he's been given, and he has all authority, as we just read. And we also saw last week in John 16, we saw that Jesus said, all that the Father has is mine. And so he has all authority because the Father has given him everything. And included in that is, as we just saw in verse 2, eternal life. I give eternal life to as many as you have given me. So he's the giver of eternal life. That is included in his authority. Jesus alone uh, gives eternal life. He gets to decide who gets it, who doesn't. And so what I want us to see is this authority that's been given to Jesus, uh, Jesus is restoring to us. In the garden, remember, Adam had authority. He was naming stuff. And God told him to go, you know, subdue the earth and uh, make the gardens the way you want them and all that stuff. He had all the authority and he lost it. And Jesus is giving it back. Now, well, I'll get to that in a minute. We need to understand this. So what I want you to see, we just read in Revelation 5 about being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Verse uh, Revelation 5, verse 9. He redeemed us with his blood out of every tongue and tribe and nation, right? We were purchased by the blood of Jesus. Verse 10, and he made us 
kings and priests to our God, and we will reign on the earth. That sounds like authority to me. Do you understand they go together? Jesus at the cross, when he purchased us, restored the authority that Adam lost. Not only am I purchasing you with my blood, but I have authority, and I'm going to restore your authority in the earth to name stuff and rule over it and all that. I'm going to make you kings and priests, and you will reign in the earth. We got to get authority. We got to understand this. In fact, he started it a little early in Luke 10 when he sent the apostles out to heal the sick and cast out devils. And they came back, remember, they were very excited. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I give you authority over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. Satan has been having a free day up until this point. All of a sudden, here's these uh, 70 apostles, mostly the 12, but there were 70 that he sent out also. They're walking around with godlike authority and screwing up Satan's day. And now it's all of us. All of us who believe. Do we understand that Jesus was given all authority and he's handing it out to his kids? Now, here's what I want you to understand. It is his authority that enables him to send us out as his sent ones. Remember, the Father sent him out as a sent one. He sent the apostles out as sent ones. He's sending us out as sent ones. Now, uh, anybody here know the Great Commission verse? One of you fiery evangelists maybe has memorized it. Anyone? No one? Go into all the world. Yeah. And I'll be with you always at the end of the age. Now, it says, actually, it says, go therefore into all the world. You guys know what therefore means? There's, when therefore, you got to go find out what the therefore is therefore. Right. Uh-huh. Now, most of us know verse 19 and 20, but verse 18 is the therefore. Let's read it all together. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore. You get it? The authority connects it. I have authority to do this. Go therefore. The implication is go therefore in this authority that I have been given, that I'm handing out to you. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll be with you, you go. Now, by the way, uh, the, uh, I'm going to get into this real long, but uh, the Greek here is not go to another country and preach the gospel. And so if you're not a missionary, this verse doesn't apply to you. It literally means as you go, wherever you go, make disciples. So, yes, you can go to Zimbabwe and make disciples, or you can just go to Walmart and make disciples. Doesn't matter. As you go, wherever you go, make disciples. I've given you authority to do that. I have all authority. So, you go, make disciples. That's it. Pretty simple. But we've got to get the authority. 
And this doesn't just work for evangelists. This works for all gifting. I'm telling you, church, if you don't understand authority and the way authority works in God, you will never walk in the fullness of your gifting. It won't happen. Because all of it functions under the authority of the anointed one. There is an anointed one. You don't have your own anointing. You have a connection. You have your own connection to the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And uh, connection to other people who are also connected to the anointed one. And it flows together by what every joint supplies. Knit together. Ephesians 4, right? If you don't understand how authority works, if you don't get this, you won't full, fully function in your gifting. You'll just be frustrated and, you know, probably be a rebel for Jesus and run around and make a lot of noise and, you know, all that good stuff. Still, still get some good stuff done, probably. But it's way better if we begin to grasp uh, how this works, that Jesus has given us authority and has sent us, and he sent us in some specific ways. And so we'll get to that, actually, when we get a couple of verses further on. I want to try and move fast here because I got a lot. So this is going to be a rabbit trail, but Jesus started it, not me, so I'm going to take it, all right? He says uh, in verse 2, as many as you have given me, I'm sorry, I'll give eternal life to as many as you have given me. And I notice that when we read this verse, everyone in here who's a Calvinist kind of leans forward a little bit <laughs> and goes, uh, as many as you have given me. That's, that's predestination, isn't it? Well, maybe. Maybe it's predestination. Maybe it's foreknowledge. Jesus, Father, the Father gives Jesus some men and not other men. And uh, what about free will? Didn't we just read in John chapter 3 that uh, the condemnation is that men chose darkness rather than light? That sounds like choice. How's all that work, Tony? I'm glad you asked. All right. So it brings us into this argument which uh, is, uh, I got, I'm going to deal with it just because it's here, but I'm going to try and deal with it quickly because it's really not a worthy argument in the, in the terms of moving forward in the kingdom. Uh, but Jesus does say these things, so we have to deal with them. Now, one of the places he says it, and he expounds a little bit, is in John chapter 6. So we're going to go back to John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40, and look at it and see if this is the case, is Jesus really saying, I've just given some men to, uh, the Father's just given some men to Jesus, but not others, and if you're not one of them, yeah, doesn't sound encouraging, does it? John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the ones who come to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then he's going to tell us what the will of him who sent him is. Um, verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And that certainly sounds like God's just picking people to give to Jesus until you read verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me. So he's got two wills going on here. Saying it again. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. So, in verse 39, it sounds like 
people believe in him because they've been given to Jesus. In verse 40, it sounds like they've been given to Jesus because they chose to believe in his sent one. Which one is it? Well, if you're a Calvinist, stop reading at verse 39. If you're an Arminian, read all the way to verse 40. Right? Or maybe none of us fully understand how God parses predestination and foreknowledge and free will, and we'll just accept that they're all three clearly there. And this I do know. I know this clearly from 1 Timothy 2 and from 2 Peter 3, where it also tells us that his will is not that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life, that he desires that all men be saved. So I'm pretty sure he's not picking, you know, heaven, 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 hell, heaven, hell, heaven, heaven, wheat tear, wheat tear, wheat tear. I'm pretty sure it's not that simple. And so uh, let's move on and not get stuck in that argument and just go, at the end of the day, uh, clearly he wants, from this standpoint, you can just assume that anyone you talk to is potentially a disciple to be made. uh, And you can go ahead and assume that they're not a tear and, and try and save them. Okay? And if it turns out they're a tear, well, you know, you wasted a few moments, but it's all good. Right? All right. Uh, I'm making fun a little bit, but I think sometimes we argue over stuff that's silly, and so there. Now, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And again, uh, I said this in, when we were in John 15, it's not what you do, it's who you know. It really is. And so what we need to see here is eternal life is, clearly, because Jesus is saying this, is knowing the Father and the Son whom he sent or his sent one. And again, we've been talking all through this that it's about him bringing us into the Trinity accepted in the beloved, into the Godhead, into the family, adopted sons and daughters. It is, really is about relationship. We say it's not about rules, it's not about law, it's about relationship. But then sometimes we act like it's about rules and about law. Uh, and don't feel bad because Paul had the same argument with them in the book of Galatians. They were doing the same thing. It really is about relationship. It's about knowing him, not about just doing the right stuff. And the, the interesting thing is if we really get to know him, we'll do the right stuff, right? So it's kind of a cart before the horse thing. Now, just so we understand this, uh, I want to look at a couple of verses. We, already, we, we referenced this one again uh, a few weeks ago, but I'm going to read it this time uh, so you understand it, because sometimes this can trip people up. In Matthew chapter 7, uh, he talks about people who uh, say they know him, but it turns out they don't, Okay. And uh, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So clearly, it's about obedience, right? Uh, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Didn't we do stuff? Didn't we do religious stuff in your name? Didn't we do all the stuff? And listen to what he says. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And this is enlightening. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. Remember last week I talked about Psalm 1, Psalm 2, that we meditate on the law of God because we want the blessing that comes from doing it His way. That the world meditates on lawlessness because they want to get out from under His rules. So what I want you to see here is that this verse is describing, hard to believe, a church or people in a church, in the church, that say the right things, believe God, or believe in God, believe He exists, would call themselves Christians, but when push comes to shove, they're only willing to do what they're willing to do, uh, and they're, they're portions of God's word they're not willing to obey. Well, I'll do this. I'll do, I'll do the love people part, but I'm not going to do that part, or I'm not going to do that part. And so God calls that lawlessness. He says, you don't know me. You don't really know me. You're more, it's more important to you that you have your way than you do it my way. Now, I don't know where all those lines are, uh, but they scare me, so let's not see how close we can get to them, yeah? Now, what I want to point out here, though, is it's, it's not, you know, oops, I, I, I got selfish and now I'm going to hell because of one decision. It's, it's uh, the intention of our heart. It's, it's, does my heart desire to obey God, or does my heart at the end of the day want to do what I want to do and work God into my schedule, right? That's really what's going on here. And so this is what Jesus is talking about. And, and we see in Matthew 7 that uh, eternal life is knowing the Father in Jesus whom we sent. Or in other words, Knowing is demonstrated through obedience, though. So if you're asking, well, how do I know if I know God? Glad you asked. There's a, there's a verse for that. There's actually several. Uh, knowing is demonstrated through obedience. Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, hey, why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? Isn't that a brilliant question? Why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? Well, I'm willing to do most of what you say. I'm just not willing to do that. I'm not Lord then. You don't really know me, do you? <laughs> John 14, 15, we looked at that already. If you love me, keep my commandments. The evidence that we love God is a desire to keep his commandments. Not just a, a you know, grudging, all right, I'm going to obey him because I don't want to go to hell. I really don't want to do it. It's when the Spirit of God has come into us and we've glimpsed the new life that is in Christ and we desire to keep His commandments. Again, it doesn't mean we don't fail. We fail, don't we? But when we fail, we have godly repentance and we go, God, I want to do better. I want to keep your commandments. That's our heart's desire. That is how we know that we know Him. Or when John was asked this question in 1 John chapter 2, uh, he answers it for us because he knew you were going to ask today. He put this in here just for this morning. Um, now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Uh, he's just saying what Jesus said. Why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? That's a lie. I'm not really Lord if you're not really following. And so he's just saying... If we don't have a desire to do it his way, uh, we don't really know him. We haven't really met the guy. And so uh, the truth is on him. He says, but whoever keeps his word, and we're going to really get into his word here in the next section, 
in this prayer. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him or completed in him. Remember, we just saw that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How is love perfected? We get so excited about him knowing more than us and his ways being higher than our ways that we start to want to do it his way. That's all the fear of the Lord is. Lord, I don't want to do it my way. I want to do it your way. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And so uh, he says, uh, by this we know that we are in him. How can you tell if you're in Jesus? Well, I, I want to be there. I want to do it his way. Doesn't mean I always succeed, but I want to do it his way. That's how you know you're in Jesus. If, if you don't, if it still feels like a burden to you, if there's still a little bit of Psalm 2 in you that says, I really would like to get out from under all of this Jesus stuff, you probably haven't known him, and you need to come to him and surrender and experience the joy that is in doing it his way. There's no joy in doing it your way. There's joy for a moment, not for long. Okay, let's move on. Verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And I think these, these are synonymous. I think he's saying, I have glorified you on the earth. And the way I did that is I did the work you gave me to do. And so it's a very simple principle. We glorify God through simple obedience. Again, obedience glorifies God. Here's what I love. And uh, Tangie did an awesome job last week of hitting on this. It's tailored to you. He finished the work the Father gave him. You know what? If I give you work to do and you don't finish it, no one cares. Well, I care. But eternally, doesn't matter doesn't matter if I tell you to do something and you look at me and go, nope. Uh, so, but, you know, still, try and be nice. The only work you have to do is the work the Father gave you to do. The person next to you can't give you work to do. Only the Father can give you work to do. And you don't have to compare yourself to other people who are doing, look at the work they're doing. I'm not doing the work they're doing. Well, maybe you weren't called to do the work they're doing. Maybe the father had different work. The awards are the same. I don't care. I honestly, this, I don't know what this says about me. If, if the work that the father gave you to do is way harder than the work he gave me to do, I am perfectly fine with just doing my work and showing up and getting the same reward. I'm not intimidated a bit by how awesome you are. That's great. You be awesome. This is my work. This is all I got to do. Right here. And I get the same reward. I'm going to glorify God doing my thing. Amen? Isn't that freeing? It really, it should be. One of the most freeing times in my life, I was trying to learn how to be an evangelist. I'm not very good at it. I mean, I can, you know, I can answer the questions. I have the information. My personality is not whatever. Anyway, uh, I'm sitting at home, praying, asking God what to do, and God, so clear, so simple, spoke to me and said, Tony, I want you to teach and pray. And I went, that's awesome. I like those things. I can do those things. I'm just going to do those. And I quit doing that ministry that I was trying to do 
the next day. That, again, doesn't mean I'm not going to lead people to Jesus or be evangelistic. I'm still called to make disciples. But I don't make disciples by necessarily, you know, going out in the mission field and accosting people with the gospel. I make disciples with the gifts God's given me. Some of it's right here. This is actually free counseling every Sunday morning for an hour. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm making some disciples here, right? Understand what's going on. Be free to just do what the Father has called you to do. That will glorify the Father. Don't worry about anyone else's glory. You just glorify the Father your way. It'll be awesome. He'll love it. He'll be excited about it. Amen? All right, verse 5. We're going to make it. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was, the Father and the Son were still together, loving each other in perfect unity, remarkably glorious. And of course, he's talking about here his return to the Father. Uh, he, he returned to glory and sits down next to the Father. We see this in Matthew 26 when he's being grilled by Caiaphas about who he is. Uh, Jesus finally goes, yep, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power and uh, coming with the angels. And Caiaphas loses his stuff and tears his robe. And it's at that point, they go, that's enough. Let's kill him. He thinks he's God, right? It's what we see in Ephesians 1 where Paul tells us that Jesus was uh, ascended uh, and is seated at the right hand of the Father above every principality and power and dominion, everything. He's above everything. Seated at the right hand of the Father. We know where he is. Now, the point is, this has implications for us who have been purchased by him at the cross or with the cross by his blood and have been authorized, sent ones by him. And here's the implications. And I want to read these out of, uh, out of Hebrews. And uh, we're going to look at uh, just, well, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says this. Now, the writer of Hebrews has been blathering on for seven chapters now about something, right? And it's good stuff. You should read it. It's about rest. Who likes rest? Hebrews. Go read it. Okay. Anyway, uh, he's been going on, and in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, I've been going on for seven chapters, but really the main point is you've got a guy, your high priest, seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. You have a guy there. You know, it's not, I was, where's Nathan? Oh, he's back in town. When Nathan wins Palm Bay City Council, uh, then I, your pastor, will have a relationship with a sitting Palm Bay councilman. <laughs> How's that? Impressive, huh? I could just call him up, tell him stuff, talk politics. It could happen. There are other pastors. There's, there's probably pastors in the state, you know, people going to church going, hey, well, my pastor knows Governor DeSantis. He can call him anytime he wants. There's, 
most presidents have a, a council of pastors that advise them, and they'll come meet them at the White House sometimes. Maybe your pastor from your church from wherever uh, meets with the president in the Oval Office a couple. Maybe that's impressive. Jesus, the great shepherd, shepherd, pastor, synonymous, right? Your pastor, what if I said my pastor sits next to God and, and I can call him any time I want. Do you understand the implications? We have a high priest. Pastor Jesus, who is paying attention to you all the time, is sitting next to the Father. wonder what he's doing. Well, let's look back into some of the blathering in Hebrews and see if we can find out. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is sitting at the Father, uh, next to the Father, just doing nothing but making intercession for us. Now, that does not mean just praying for us, even though I think he does. It means I have interceded, I have come between. I am here keeping access open between you and and the Father. You call me any time, me, you, and Dad will talk. Any time. Your pastor, your real pastor, please don't call me any time. <laughs> if you really need me, it's okay, but if it's just, hey, I had a question about this verse, not at 2 a.m., okay? <laughs> you understand. But Jesus, sure, 2 a.m., he's up. Any time. Pastor Jesus is available. You get it? We got we to gotta grasp the implications of this thing. The one who gave us authority, who will be with us always, who's sitting next to the Father above everything. He's got a great view. His perspective is awesome. One more, Hebrews chapter 4. Here's something else he's been talking about uh, that uh, we have because Jesus ascended to the Father and returned to his place of glory. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Don't start thinking that maybe the word's not right and something else will work. Stick with Jesus, even if it costs you. That's your confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He gets it. He knows your flesh. He gets it. So at your worst, when you're experiencing your weakness, when you're experiencing your temptation, what does it say to do? Hide from Jesus till you're doing better, until you feel more worthy? Or, let's read verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in my time of need. You know when I need mercy and grace? When I'm experiencing my weakness? It's not a time to hide from God. It's time to come boldly from God. That's time to cut the line, right? I know, hey, I know there's a line for people here to talk to Jesus, but I'm screwing up terribly, and I get to go to the head of the line. I'm coming boldly before the throne of grace because I need mercy and grace, and I need it right now. That is knowing him. That is relationship. You get me? Are you doing that? Are you accessing this incredible 
resource, with boldness, coming before the throne of grace. Rachel, go ahead and bring the band up. Are you availing yourself of all that Jesus purchased for you? So you can come, you can be, you can receive mercy, you can receive great grace's empowerment, you can receive empowerment to walk in the authority that he's given you. When he, if he's given you things to do, and maybe they feel bigger than you, or you're a little intimidated by them, he'll give you grace to do them, he'll give you a plan to do them. And if he gave them to you, you can do them. That's why he didn't give them to someone else. That's why he didn't give them to me. I probably wouldn't be any good at it. I'd probably just make people mad. Right? You guys doing that? We got to get this. We got to think sometimes about the things we're familiar with. We got to think about, oh my goodness, the cross. Jesus loved me that much. Heaven, on the day he takes the scroll, is singing songs about Jesus dying for me for me and how awesome it is that he redeemed me and made me a king and priest to my God you ought to personalize that that's good stuff right there you with me